Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's Thursday, the 10th of June. This podcast is George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe in the UK. Hello, George. Hey. Hello, Philip. Hey. Well, that's Phil trying very, very hard, evidently, to be enthusiastic. Well done. Uh, He's had a cup of coffee. He's all buzzed. (laughs) He's all buzzed. Uh, I am Alex Ohili, exceptionally calling from neither Washington nor Moscow, but Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, So welcome to the Non-Aligned Global Politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Uh, So just a little bit about the Non-Aligned movement, which is where we're going to start. The Non-Aligned movement was founded and held its first conference in Belgrade in 1961, under the leadership of Tito of Yugoslavia, as well as Nasser of Egypt, Nkrumah of Ghana, Sukarno of Indonesia, and importantly, Nehru of India. I say that because we're going to be discussing India today. Uh, so just to cast your mind back to 1961, um, that was the kind of peak of decolonization and optimism about what I guess we now call the developing world, but what was then the third world. And also the belief that these countries could forge an independent path to modernity. Uh, those the leaders of the non-aligned movement were in large part, I think you could say, secular nationalists committed to modernism in, in one form or another. And what we're going to talk about today about contemporary India is actually a country whose uh, government has turned towards ethnic particularism, especially specifically in the form of Hindu nationalism, uh, which I guess casts a light on how uh, far uh, universalism has fallen as, um, as as a sort of cohering ideal. Uh, guys. Well, I guess the question, the more pertinent question is, is there still a continuing spirit of third world uh, universalistic non-alignment in the fact that Belgrade welcomed you, uh, the diseased kind of leper from Latin America to its shores? Hmm? Well, yeah, very much so. This is uh, as, a, as a previous guest of the podcast, Lily Lynch, called it the coronavirus Casablanca. And that's what it is. (laughs) That's brilliant. Um, Not a bad, yeah, that's uh, maybe coronavirus interzone. That's it. Well, I don't know about interzone because it's, that was famously another Moroccan city. It was actually Tangiers, which was uh, interzone in uh, William S. Burroughs's writings. But anyway, we're getting, we're getting distracted. Yeah, no, but. Are you having a good time? Belgrade, Belgrade is lovely. It's, uh, there's cafes and bars everywhere. How's the, uh, how's the food? (laughs) <laughs> I've gotten in trouble on Twitter for um, slating the uh, Serbian version or the, well, really the, the Western Balkan version of, of kebabs called shavapi, uh, which um, I felt have, are somewhat underspiced. But, you know, we, we shouldn't get into that because yeah, we should get into less Westerner. controversial issues like politics. <laughs> <laughs> typical Westerner, like somebody said on Twitter, expecting all their exotic food to be slathered with spices and herbs. Why can't like why can't people elsewhere also have normal food, like just healthy, hail hearty food? I'm just saying why do you have to have these cosmopolitan expectations wherever you go? The you world is not set up mm. for your convenience, like what his face says in um, The Big Lebowski. Well, indeed, it isn't. But um, still, I still think the Ottomans should come back and uh, do a job on the on the local cuisine. Anyway, um, again, to, to move to less less controversial issues, we should turn to politics. And uh, well, one one interesting thing about Belgrade, actually, which I thought was cool, on, uh, on this the other side of the river, New Belgrade, which was built in the sixties and seventies by Tito, there are a, a row of trees of sycamore trees, each planted by a member of the Lawn Nine movement, uh, probably not themselves manually, but you know they were there uh, present. Presumably 
presumably in some ceremony. And there's a plaque or a, a actually a stone plate for each tree with their name on it. So you can go along looking and you can see, uh, you know, Assad Sr., you can see Nehru, you can see uh, Tito, of course, and uh, Nkrumah and various others. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was kind of a, a, a blast from the past. It was kind of, you can, you can imagine these um, third world leaders in sharp suits all gathering together in, uh, you know, it, with the kind of modernist spirit in the early 60s. It was like, hmm, are, the, other trees, are the trees in a neat line or are they kind of unaligned or non-aligned in various mm. different mm. alignments? Yeah, they're in, they're in a, a straight line, but neither okay. pointing at Moscow nor Washington. Okay. Oh my God. Anyway, we should, we should okay. stop this. Um, more seriously, uh, yes. So Hindu nationalism, I think that's what we're going to be talking about about today with our guest Achin Vanaik uh, in, in just a little bit. Uh, it'll be me interviewing him. But um, before that, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about these issues and, and our perspective on it, I guess, before we learn more and more detail from someone who's obviously an expert on this. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's um, India's big claim to fame and this one, the element that is um, still, I think, uh, kind of an important part, an important component of especially elite identity in India, is the fact that it's maintained itself as liberal democracy since its inception, um, in contrast to so many of these other kind of um, the modernizing modernizing nationalist and secular regimes that Alex mentioned, and that were part of the non-aligned movement and that fell so early that fell into um, kind of uh, expansionist nationalisms who were kind of concerned with um, provoking quarrels with their neighbors to kind of as a diversion from domestic politics, such as in the Middle East, but also there became military dictatorships of one form or another, um, you know, which is to say, I suppose that the pall of, um, of kind of uh, military, of military authoritarianism, of um, nationalism kind of ending up um, uh, I suppose the involution of anti-colonial nationalism, all of that started, um, you know, deep, fairly um, deep in the 20th century. So anyway, it's only to say that India, even though it's maintained itself as a liberal democracy, it's still, um, it's still not escaped the general kind of um, pathologi pathological aspects of contemporary global politics. And some of this is expressed in the, in the failures and the disenchantment with the kind of corrupt old Congress party, which dominated Indian politics from independence throughout the Cold War era, and the rise of the Hindu chauvinism that uh, Machin is going to tell us about. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm far from an India scholar, but was rereading Perry Anderson's Indian ideology, and it was interesting because he kind of starts by saying um, they wanted to do a, a kind of a, a study of of the BRICS, and he found that India was <clears throat> basically played in his study, the same role that Turkey played in relation to the EU, a kind of a state which is a product of a national movement of the early 20th century, which now leads to the kind of domestic politics being determined by competition over the kind of official versions of, of that history of the early uh, mid 20th century. Um, and obviously in the Indian case, specifically political debate over the over how the British Empire passed away, who did it what succeeded it and, and that kind of, um, I guess it shows how the kind of like recent history is, is, you know, has deeply political, uh, meaning. Um, and obviously this all determines like the, the current idea of India, which I think has a particularly strong hold over Indian 
elites as a kind of nationalist discourse at a time when there is no longer a national liberation struggle against an external power. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's obviously a well overdue episode um, for us to, to finally be, uh, be, be tackling India. But yeah, uh, looking forward to, to hearing the interview. No, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting in that Perry Anderson book, I mean, one is how critical he is of Gandhi specifically, and maybe the whole Congress leadership, because I think generally the understanding is that, you know, you have Congress, the con- or the Congress being uh, liberal, secular, uh, and so on, and democratic, and then you have this shift to Hindu nationalism, which is exclusivist, particularist, uh, and more authoritarian. But one thing that that shows and that the the development of uh, of the Congress, both pre-independence and after, is that one, it already it was always kind of tending towards a, a sort of Hindu exclusivism or this sort of default idea that um, that hit that the Hindu was the was the kind of centerpiece of the nation, right? And that it'll include the nation will include Muslims and so on, but um, but they were happy at partition to well to let partition happen basically um, uh, at that you know so that they could have their sort of unitary state. And so the seeds, I guess, for Hindu nationalism were already sown uh, by the much more liberal Congress Party. And actually, to make a, a comparison with with Turkey, because you mentioned it, George. Uh, you know, Turkey, I guess there was a same, similar thing under Kemalism, under the nationalist modernizing regime of the early 20th century, that there as well, it was supposedly, you know, meant to be a, a, a country for all and be secular and not based on uh, sort of any ethnic identity. But of course, it was the, the subtext of it was that it was very much exclusively for Turks. Uh, and it, it developed into a very hard exclusionary nationalism uh, First, with you know the genocide of the Armenians, and as well as the the oppression and exclusion of Kurds, and so on. So, it, yeah, I think it's interesting to see how even kind of liberal, or if not liberal, at least nationalist modernizing regimes, maybe sowed the seeds for for later versions of nationalism that you have today, uh, as these states turn away from uh, at least lip service to a universalism to turning towards a much more obviously particularist and exclusivist uh, idea of the nation. Yeah, and of course, I mean, it was under Congress, under um, Indira Gandhi's leadership, um, that you had the emergency rule and all of the brutality and authoritarianism of um, emergency rule in India in the 70s. So, I mean, it's a very good, you know, the uh, the Anderson pieces on India, it, it's a very good um a very good overview. And the other element of it, which I particularly appreciated, is the way in which he skewers Gandhi. I mean, not only kind of the, you know, for his, um, not only for his creepy sexual predilections and coprophilia, well. <laughs> but also that his kind of his great claim as having kind of, uh, for which he's credited of having ejected the British off the back of um, pacifism alone, just by turning the other cheek and all of that, um, is untrue. It doesn't take kind of account of the wider political context, the external pressures on the British Empire at the time, but also, and you touched upon this, Alex, the very, um, the casual ease with which Gandhi reconciled himself to partition and his willingness to kind of accept um, cataclysmic levels of violence as some kind of um, inescapable cosmic force. Um, part of the natural order of things as he kind of washed his hands of responsibility for trying to um, maintain some kind of um, political offer to Muslims in the Indian subcontinent as um, independence and partition approached. 
And that was very good and important, I think, because I think that is the myth of India that still carries abroad. You know, if you ask all the, um, if you ask kind of your average, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, a master's student in international relations, aspirant PMC type, they'll know about Gandhi and Mandela as heroes. And this will be the kind of the. I, I, um, I think far beyond ma- just just master students. I mean, I think in general, Gandhi is a yeah. is an admired I mean, figure. Yeah, I mean, why, like why are you having a go at these at these master students? Like, what, what have they done to you? I mean, like educated. I'm not having a go at master students. It's a reference, a throwback. It's a reference to an earlier episode. We talked about the importance of um, postgraduate education in socializing the PMC. That aside, yeah, I mean, generally kind of edgy, you know, what um, kind of uh, people who consider themselves informed about world politics and educated and what have you, that's what they know about India is Gandhi the kind of the good brown person who ejected the nasty white people with minimum force and shows that you don't need violence to get rid of empire. You know, that's the kind of the lesson which is taken from India and um, is part of the Indian myth, you know, insofar as every nation has an exceptionalist myth to which it presents to the world, that is definitely an important um, thread in the Indian one. Yeah. Just, just to, just to jump in with a couple of, I guess, sort of stray thoughts um prompted by 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 rereading that that anderson book the first is the um and we kind of touched on this already but that fusion of nation with religion in the struggle for independence and that um has anderson refers to his own upbringing in ireland and how there's some similarities um there and this has obviously you know deeply it, it determines a lot of the, the domestic politics of the uh the indic subcontinent uh sorry the indian subcontinent um and the second point just to throw in is this idea that there's you know this idea of india which is quite a romantic one i think all nations have have this but it really um it really is quite i think striking um that there are a lot of contradictions that are kind of melded together in this idea of India. So this idea of kind of an antiquity, but the continuity with the present, this like very diverse diversity across the, across the, the country, but brought together in unity. It's a massive country, but it still is a democracy. And then touched on this already, this kind of multi-confessionality and secular, sexuality, secularality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the word, it's a, the word it's a, is secularism, George. It, I think that that I think secularality is maybe a word as well, um, but yeah, I mean it doesn't work as well. It should be multi-confessionalism and secularism. Um, but yeah, I mean you you know listeners, it's supposed to be evocative, so you know listeners can can use this to spark their own uh, their own thoughts. But yeah, I mean, I guess this um, you know this this Indian ideology is right at the centre of of what binds together the Indian um, the Indian ruling class, and you know obviously goes a long way to determining the politics of the country. Very good. Uh, lots to think about there already, and maybe we can take some of that into the interview with Achin, who we're going to call up and speak to right now. So this is Alex here, and I am delighted to be joined by Achin Van Eyck, who is a renowned writer and social activist, uh, was a founding member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in India, and a and is a retired professor of international relations and a former head of the Department of Political Science at the University of Delhi. So Achin, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy for you to be joining us today. And uh, 
we're obviously going to be talking about some big themes in relation to India, secularism, democracy, nationalism, modernity. And uh, as listeners will have heard in the introduction, we'll be interested in teasing out some of the global tendencies, I guess, from the Indian story, specifically I, what I guess I would call, but maybe you want to correct me as we go along, uh, yes. the decline of universalism and the rise of particularism. But before we get to all that, I want it to be something a little bit more current uh, and talk about the pandemic. So could we just maybe talk about what the government response has been like, um, how it's played with the electorate, what is the... You know, what are the possible kind of medium-term consequences for India? What is it looking like right now? Well, I can tell you that uh, this government has been quite shameful with regard to the question of the pandemic. Uh, there's criminal neglect and there's criminal intent. Let me elaborate on this a bit briefly. The number of people in India, the proportion of people in India who have got fully vaccinated is only 3.5%. The proportion of people who have got one dose is around 15%. And this is overwhelmingly weighted with regard to urban India. This is a terrible situation. In the whole of 2020, this is perhaps the only country which, when it started getting worried, the government, when it started getting worried about the pandemic, only gave a four-hour notice before having a comprehensive national lockdown for several weeks, which was then extended. Can you imagine that? And what happened as a result of that is that a huge workforce, which in India is, of course, a migratory uh, workforce, because 93% of the workforce in India belongs to what's called the informal sector. And they had to suddenly move. Their jobs were closed, and they had to move. And None of this was prepared for. The end result, of course, was that this was quite a terrible and traumatic situation. Uh, yeah. And it was fortunate for India to some extent that the first wave of this pandemic affected the advanced developed countries much more than it did India. Mm -hmm. But the economy of India in the first wave was affected much more mm -hmm. than, say, in the advanced countries. And what should have been done was to provide direct financial support and in-kind support, food grains and all, to the general public, which was really hammered very badly, which was not done. Instead, of course, there was a preoccupation about promoting uh, industry and so on. The criminal neglect part, uh, intent part, and this is in 2020, was um, ramming through because parliament was more or less shut down. So you had this government ramming through uh, uh, the laws on agriculture, which have caused this tremendous upsurge of, of farmers that you know, and also bringing in new labor laws, which aim at making uh, strikes, legal strikes, uh, very, very difficult, unionization extraordinarily difficult, and so on. And they were rammed through. And then in 2021, we had this extraordinary situation. India is supposed to be one of the countries that has a big pharmaceutical industry, one of the biggest in the world. Mm -hmm. And what do you have? You have a government which responds very late, which didn't go in for at least purchasing of enough um, vaccines from abroad, which relied on two big private sector companies producing it in India, and even then uh, made a mess of things in the sense that uh, you have an Indian government, which I think along with Brazil has asked 
for the removal of intellectual property rights on an international scale so that you can have more production, uh, so that uh, more, uh, the formula for producing vaccines in there. But do you know that in India, this government, apart from those two main private sector companies, has not had compulsory licensing, insisting on compulsory licensing so that you can have more units producing it in the Indian context. So the result is an enormous vaccine shortage. This is perhaps one of the few or perhaps the only country that has not insisted that the central government buy the vaccines from mm. private and all, and then uh, uh, distribute it free. Instead, what it says is that it said 50% will get, and 50% will lead to the state governments and the private sector to provide vaccines. It took the uh, Supreme Court to say, this is not good. Look at what the other countries are doing. You should be giving it free. And... What's happened then, of course, is that now you have 25% for the private sector. But can you imagine charging prices when you should be giving it free? Absolutely. Which means, of course, that you have uh, the uh, private sector in this country making profit, and you have companies from abroad wanting to sell here uh, and also getting uh, making money. But this is shocking. The United States has uh, distributed free, whether it's in private sector or in the public sector. And you could have done many things. The Spain, of course, uh, talked about nationalizing at least temporarily the private hospitals. I don't know if you know, but 80% of the public in India has to rely on private hospitals because the situation of the public healthcare infrastructure is terrible. So there has been a lot of anger about this. It seems to have affected somewhat the popularity of the central government, which has made them worried uh, to some extent. But uh, the longer term implications, what can I say? We have according to the official statistics of the government, uh, a little less than 400,000 deaths. There is huge mm -hmm. underreporting. Yeah, yeah. Testing is under. So the actual number could be anything between two or three to five times this figure. And it's still a situation which is really terrible here. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean... That, that really is shocking, I, though I think there's an element to which everybody looks on to other countries as potentially handling it better than one's own. I, I know in Brazil, people were talking about India, at least having domestic uh, manufacturing capabilities for the vaccines, whereas Brazil didn't. But anyway, I mean, that's not to say that one country is better. I, I, the hearing from India to sound, um, I, I mean... Well, uh, the, yeah, as yeah, you say, cr criminal, criminal, uh, negligent, and and intent in India. Um, and I, I mean, I wanted to also ask what the sort of nature of the debate over these issues are, because I think in many places it's been obviously inadequate. I mean, uh, perhaps not really focusing on some of the some of the serious root issues, uh, whether it be sort of intellectual property protections or, um, in you know, l lack of capacity. Yeah, well, to manufacture I, I just mentioned to be good. Uh, you see the point that you made about Brazilians saying that India at least has a manufacturing, um, a pharmaceutical industry. That's perfectly correct. In fact, during the HIV uh, uh, pandemic or, or problem, the Indian pharmaceutical industry played a very important role in providing the necessary uh, uh, for HIV at much cheaper prices. So you had this capacity that is there. Mm -hmm. So what makes it criminal is that it simply wasn't used. And as I pointed out, you have lots of other units, not just these two big uh, private sector uh, uh, companies, uh, Serum Institute and what's called Biotech. Uh, you have other units. And what India could have done is insisted the Indian government that your formula of your two companies also be given to other units so they can also more, uh, uh, create more vaccine. And yet the same government 
at the international level is saying that, of course, when it comes to Moderna and Pfizer and all the rest of it, there should be, of course, no intellectual property rights and we should mm. have the formula and so on. So you can see this hypocrisy that's also existed in this government. And the last point, of course, is that you had a prime minister who in 2020 was boasting uh, about how India is handling the, um, uh, the pandemic so well and all, largely because it didn't affect the first wave, didn't affect India so much as it affected uh, other countries. And situation. This second wave is there. We don't have enough vaccines. And what if there is a third wave? It's really very, very worrying. And then there is the cover-up. Some of you must have heard about some of the uh, bodies floating in the Gang Ganges River, uh, the uh, huge overcrowding cremation grounds to try to uh, bury uh, uh, or cremate their dead and so on. All of these things are indicative that there is tremendous underreporting in the situation in the rural areas or the semi-rural areas is very, very bad. It's bad enough, but mm. at least there's some improvement in the cities and towns where I am and others are. But this is a situation and reprehensible all the more because India had the capacity for that prepared properly uh, to be yeah. able to resort this. No, absolutely. Um, and I think that's a, well, it's a good place to start, I think, and also to um, counter certain portrayals, or maybe certain understandings that, well, you know, countries in the global south, uh, as it's called, perhaps inadequately, uh, are, you know, countries which maybe don't have the same capacities and they're th therefore unable to uh, manage a pandemic. But, uh, you know, what you've just said there, action about India and something that I'm familiar with in Brazil, as well as, you know, the state actively and the kind of government actively undermining those capacities that the state already does have and has acquired and maybe has had previous successes, as you mentioned, with regards to, to AIDS in India. Um, but let's let's move on because um, as interesting as that is, I think we'll end up doubling back to uh, the the contemporary political scene um, after we talk about uh, India in, in perhaps um, grander themes, <laughs> to put it that way. So maybe just to set this up and to set up what is going to be the key concern, I guess, of this episode, um, the Indian ideology, I guess, as it could be called, which focuses on secularism, uh, I guess, multiculturalism. Uh, and uh, and democracy, uh, mm. which was something that was led by the Congress, by the Party of Nehru, um, and as the the BJP has displaced the Congress from the center of the Indian politics, I think the usual view that people might have is that this is therefore an attack on these pillars of uh, of what was Indian or what is Indian democracy, but uh, specifically its secularism and tolerance and so on. Um, but one thing that you show in your work uh, is in many ways that that secular modernity has been attacked and undermined from many different sides. And we're going to talk about how those uh, how, how those different sides attack secular modernity. Um, but also, I think what's perhaps most interesting is that sometimes uh, those who have undermined what I'm calling here secular modernity as a shorthand have often been supposedly secular modernists. Um, or, for example, how the seeds for today's Hindu nationalism was actually advanced by those who preached tolerance, inclusivity, and so on. Um, so before we proceed any further, I, I wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind laying out a uh, kind of basic understanding of secularism, uh, because your work shows how there's different meanings attached to secularism, which often go beyond just the mere separation of church and state, which I think is the way that people commonly understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some, I think, perversions even of the term secularism in India today, that the way that Hindu nationalists often use secularism as an argument for Hindu domination effectively, which yes. for me came as a surprise and it seems so perverse. So I'm interested to hear more. So if you could just lay out uh, so we can, okay. yeah. 
very quickly. Um, there are three terms that we have to distinguish. One is the term secular. The second is the question of secularization. And third is the question of secularism. And uh, historically, uh, first came the term secular in largely Christian discourse, right? Then comes the term uh, secularization, which related to 1648 and the secularization or takeover of ecclesiastical lands and so on. Huh? And then, of course, with the Enlightenment and modernity, we have another understanding of secularization. And lastly, the, the term secularism, which really comes in the mid-19th century. Okay, let's take the term secular. Secular, in fact, uh, the term from Latin was a kind of great span of time, the spirit of the age. It was related to the emergence, if you like, in Christian discourse about uh, two kinds of time. There is first the God's time of eternity, and there is profane time, so sacred and profane time. They don't go along parallel structures. In fact, God's time of eternity is much more powerful and intervenes in this time. Hmm? So that's where, and that notion of secular as time, you find, for example, even now in economics, when people talk about secular trends of the economy mm. and so on, right? The term secularization, as I said, comes later. Huh? But when you have a modernity, what's the difference between modernity and pre-modernity? And in a simple sentence, I would say that the most important difference is that the rate, the depth, the scale, and the scope of change is incredibly greater. And that's what really defines modernity. If you like, in the last 250 years, the human societies has changed much, much more than in all the centuries before. And I'd, I'd even say that in the last 50, 70 years, the uh, human societies in the world, the human uh, world has changed much more than in the 200 years before that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you have a tremendous... So what happened is that secular, also the notion of time, itself changes. From a static notion of time that I pointed out earlier, you now have a notion of time, if you like, which is supposed to be much more linear because with this change comes the idea of progress. Um, so you have a linear conception. You have a, a conception, empty conception. The empty conception is that forget about this business of God's time of eternity intervening into our time, as it were. And of course, you have what's called a homogeneous conception. That is, time is the same everywhere. A minute is the same everywhere, and so on. So a new conception of time emerges. Secularization has to be the registration of this kind of change in modernity. And therefore, you had three notions of secularization emerging. Hmm? One was responsive, uh, responding to the kind of changes that are taking place. Secularization means some considerable degree of decline in the influence and power of religious institutions, bodies, ideologies, beliefs, and so on. A second conception became is that secularization relates to a kind of compartmentalization, a disengagement. After all, when you talk about politics and economics, all kinds of changes have taken place. Custom and the church doesn't play as big a role in organizing the economy and politics and so on as it did earlier. Hmm? So it gets compartmentalized, if you like, into a certain domain. Hmm? And the third was the idea of greater rationalization. So, for example, in Christian discourse, there's also the argument that Protestantism represents a certain Christ secularization of Christianity. Right. If you like, they have. The peculiar Indian conception was not to make a distinction between secular and secularization, and to say that secularization basically means tolerance. Mm. Mm. And tolerance is the hallmark of 
India from ancient times to now. So look at our wonderful society and, uh, and civilization, which is so different because we have been the most diverse, which is true in terms of religion, in terms of uh, uh, languages, uh, in terms of uh, uh, what do you call it, topography and climate, for, uh, fauna and all that. Uh, I would not say in terms of uh, racial biological features because there Brazil, which has blue-eyed blondes as well as all kinds of others, would probably be more <laughs> diverse. Huh? But otherwise, what you're really talking about here. And then, of course, the argument that this has all been held together by this unique quality of tolerance. Unfortunately, this is a very dangerous conception because the ancient notion of tolerance and ancient pluralism is very different from modern conceptions of pluralism uh, and, and, and tolerance, in other words. Because in modernity, uh, tolerance is connected to something that did not exist in the past, which is a rights discourse. Yeah. And therefore, is a much more positive uh, content. The question of secularism which emerged was really, uh, secularism was an ideology of morals. And the central point about that notion of secularism was that uh, morality should now rely upon humans in this world and not upon some kind of transcendent principle, God or something like that over here. So if you like a kind of new understanding of ethicality, which is then connected to this notion of universalism, that human beings are universal across all cultures and societies, and therefore we must talk about universal principles of morality to a much greater extent. Humanity, secular humanism, if you like, is what really emerges over here. So you can see that these are terms that emerge, and this pretense that India has a lot to teach the rest of the world because of its distinctive notion of secularism or, secular, uh, or secularization. It doesn't make a dis distinction between the two. It teaches as a state of affairs which has been enduring. is very dangerous because what it does is it tells you that secularism arises out of tolerance which is always there. Yeah. In fact, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. A modern conception of tolerance emerges out of the establishment of a much more secular society. Right. And I think that is very, very important to understand. I'm being perhaps a bit academic, but I hope I'm no, getting my point No, across. I think that that comes across very clearly. And it's, yeah, it is fascinating how secularism gets reinterpreted as tolerance and then is seen not as something that emerges perhaps, you know, through the European Enlightenment in, in arguments for, for religious toleration, uh, which set the ground, I guess, for secularism, but it gets reinterpreted as something ancient, I guess, and, and inscribed in some essential India or something. Um, and, and it's not just a question of religious toleration, because, as I said, a modern conception of toleration would be rights-connected. It would not yes. simply be a passive coexistence, because India has had this kind of coexistence of different religions and all. So I think that's very important also. Yeah. Mm. Sorry. I yeah, no, and I, I mean, I do want to, in in just a little bit, get back to that notion and see how it relates to, I guess, most more postmodern, multicultural notions of of tolerance that you see today, especially in the West, and how mm. uh, India relates to those. But before we get to that, um, we should turn, I guess, to to politics and and history, uh, more, I guess, recent history, um, which is, as I already said a little bit earlier on, was that th th there's this idea that you know the Congress party was liberal and secular, but now India, uh, a secular republic, is now governed by the BJP, by Hindu nationalists who are authoritarian and religious. But there's a there's an argument that you make, uh, amongst others, that actually the Congress actually undermined a, a kind of secular notion already kind of early on, um, that it 
or, or maybe to put it another way, that maybe it advanced or laid the grounds for uh, a more exclusively Hindu conception of the Indian nation, um, which which runs co- counter to its maybe perhaps its self presentation or the way that it's understood uh, from outside. Okay, uh, let me just try to elaborate a little bit more because I am arguing, in fact, that what the whole period in which the Congress was the dominant political force um, laid the grounds, if you like, for the subsequent emergence of a much more uh, uh, radical uh, Hindu nationalism, in a sense. And here, if you like, you go into the national uh, into the national movement to fight against British colonialism, a country which is uh, colonized. Over a period of time, intellectuals of that, indigenous intellectuals, uh, Indian intellectuals emerge, which have to try to explain this colonization and which have to find some sources of self-worth, if you like, in order to fight back. Because after all, the British were much more powerful technologically, militarily. They even had, of course, schools and hospitals and things of that sort and so on. And therefore, they looked back to Indian uh, past and came up with the idea that, look, we have a remarkable diversity and what has featured India is this remarkable tolerance and this great unity in diversity. Hmm? So this unity in diversity was a crucial theme. And what it meant was that they have Congress had an idea that since this multiculturalism of India was basically a society of so many religions and religion is central to culture, what we have is a kind of we need is a coming together or collation of different religious communities to come and fight against uh, uh, the British. And this fits in with our notion of sectorization, secularism, which is equal respect to all religions. Mm. So you had the Congress party trying to collate Gandhi. So even though he unfortunately he has a very uh, promotes a Hindu symbology, Hindu symbols and all that to guide it. He's also talking about how other religions are as good, good, we must all come together and so on. The other current was that, look, what we need to do to become strong, and this is associated with BJP and what we call the Sangh Parivar, is that this is a majority Hindu country and we must unite the Hindus. Hmm? Right. And Hinduism by its very nature is a very tolerant. And therefore, who's complaining because Hinduism by its very nature is secular? Huh? <laughs> now, what is common to both of these understandings, even in the national movement period, is that one which says that Unity and diversity is our characteristic and it is uniquely tolerant. Where does this ancient tolerance come from? It has to come from before Islam comes to India. Mm. So there is, if you like, a kind of overlap. Oh, it is, after all, the ancient character of India is some kind of a Hindu society yeah, which, uh, which actually is, provides that kind of element. So you can see this kind of overlap over here. What does happen, of course, uh, is that uh, in uh, 1947 independence and then in 1950 when you establish a constitution, you do establish a constitution which is basically, if not strongly secular. Hmm? Mm-hmm. You have that uh, basically. That, which it, is just, a, just to interrupt, actually, I mean, what would you classify that secularism in the constitution as, or maybe in a comparative sense? Is it like the U.S.'s secularism more than France's secularism, maybe? Uh, no, uh, the U.S. secularism has a much more strict um, uh, sort of separation in many ways between here. And uh, in the case of uh, Europe, well, fr- France, of course, also has a very strict laicite conception here. Um, the, um, uh, but uh, in Europe, because of their particular histories, their uh, countries, of course, also had a kind of formal alignment with this or that church. 
this is not the case in France, but it's the case in, in, in England, the case in Sweden, yeah. the case in Denmark, Germany, all the rest of it over here. The United States, of course, has a, a, a different uh, history over there. Uh, but uh, the Indian case had not this formal connection to any church as such. Uh, the American case had to have the strong insistence that it must be separated from church because there were a whole series of different Christian sects and churches which were fighting among each other. And in order to bring some kind of uh, this thing here, they had to emphasize that, look, we're not in favor of this particular church or that particular church or that particular sect. So it was really in the relationship to these varieties of, uh, uh, of Christian sects that they said, okay, the uh, American government is not beholden to any particular uh, church. What has turned out, of course, afterwards is that certain Christian churches have actually established a much greater influence uh, over the, uh, uh, the U.S. government than was earlier the case here, um, the, particularly the Protestant churches, uh, certain Protestant churches and so on. But in the Indian case, it's not there. Okay, we have a, a formalist thing. We have a democratic constitution for democratic rights with lots of weaknesses. But do remember that India was a country that established a kind of democratic, uh, a basically democratic structure in a society that was overwhelmingly non-industrialized and yeah. uh, 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 rural and preparing base. Whereas what you have is uh, some of the elementary principles of democracy, which are supposed to identify uh, a, a democratic state, like, for example, universal suffrage, hmm? uh, uh, basic minority rights, uh, the um, uh, habeas corpus, all that. In many of these countries comes much later. In the United States, uh, you don't have universal suffrage until after the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. In Switzerland, women don't have the vote until 1970. We yeah. have all of these problems here. So you have India, which seems to be secular. Its constitution, therefore, is quite attractive in many respects. I won't talk about negative aspects. They're very serious negative aspects. It also had certain Hindu biases. But it did stand out as something quite secular. But the conf conflict in India as contrasted to European and, and, and North American modernity, is that you did not have any kind of serious secularization of Indian society. When you have capitalist development, when you have industrialization, you do have, if you like, a new rearrangement of the terms of coexistence between the religious and the secular, in which com compared to the past, the religious gives way. In these advanced societies, when you talk about the legal system, when you talk about the political system, when you talk about the economic system, religious factors and religious principles become much, much, much less important. They remain very important in the cultural domain in many respects. But you're talking about modern societies in which you have to have contract law, economic law, politics, all that, etc., in which there's not. In India, you have a society that is permeated to a much greater extent. The difference between Western Europe and the United States is that in the United States, you still have a substantial permeation of society by religion, less so in Western Europe. But this, of course, is something that is always subject to ups and downs. In Eastern Europe, it was less, but now it's gaining and all the rest of it. But you had, if you like, what was called a greater degree of sectorization in Western Europe than you had in India, yeah. and what you have in, uh, in India is a tension between a weakly secular state and a highly uh, unsecular, de-secular, uh, de uh, non-secular, insufficiently secularized uh, society. 
and this is a tension that can be uh, create problems for example mm -hmm. in turkey after the camel camel uh, revolution camelist revolution you had a forcible sectorization of the state huh? which actually pushed people to support uh, poor people in, in in turkey to support their mullahs and others yeah mm -hmm. and then of course that resurfaces later on so there's a kind of tensional uh, relationship of tension between the secular state, uh, say state and society, and, and so, it's not a one-to-one -one relation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess one of the facets, perhaps, maybe of that tension today, is the rise of uh, of the BJP of uh, and its associated organizations, um, all bound together by this idea of Hindutva, right? And so maybe uh, before we go any further along that line of uh, of thinking, if you could explain to us what Hindutva is and, and where did it emerge. Well, Hindutva really emerges, as I said, in the uh, uh, in the period of the struggle against colonialism. In that period, it explained, you had the Congress, which saw the British as the colonizers and wanted to struggle to move them out, right, through a collation of the different communities by appealing to their existing identities and so on. You had another kind identified with Hindutva, which emerges in the 1920s, which is also the period where in Europe you also have the merge of different kinds of fascist currents and fascistic movements and so on. And they were also influenced by that. And their attitude was that, look, if we are going to make India really strong and vibrant, we must recognize its great Hindu character and we must have Hindu unity. And they looked, therefore, to the question of uh, Hinduism as being absolutely central, or if you like, their particular understanding of Hinduism and of Hindu nationalism. And in the period for several decades, they said that the way to make India strong is to avoid the question of politics, hmm, which is corrupting, to concentrate on transforming Indian society to developing a cater-based organization, which will spread the message and which will carry out basic secular leads of various kinds and so on. It also distinguished itself by saying that British is not really our main problem. The main problem was uh, Islam, and Muslims. Mm -hmm. In other words, a highly exclusivist, uh, uh, anti um, uh, uh, sort of uh, what we call a communal nationalism. In many ways, one can call it a kind of sleeping beauty concept of nationhood. Can I just elaborate on that sleeping beauty concept of nationhood? Yeah, no, that sounds interesting. Ex explain. Yeah. Um, sleeping beauty, the wonderful beauty. Huh? In India, the sleeping beauty, which has been sleeping for so long uh, and which needs to be revived is the essential Hinduness of India. Hmm? How do we revive it? Huh? Now, after independence, we must give it the kiss of uh, politics or the kiss of awareness huh? by India's Prince Charming, which are the forces of Hindutva. Hmm? And just as Sleeping Beauty in the tale was put to sleep by the Wicked Witch, which is the Wicked Witch in India that put this essential Sleeping Beauty uh, uh, to sleep. Uh, was it the Persians? Hmm? Was it the Afghans? Was it the Mughals? Was it the Turks? No, it was Muslims. Mm. Because once you say Muslims, you combine all of them and you combine all the Muslims and Islam that has come through trade and all the rest of it. And you, of course, you indict the whole population in this area here. And this, of course, if you like, is what I mean 
by the slavery. So now we must revive this great beauty, which has always been there. If you like, it's, um, and this is something which uh, many in the Hindutva crowd don't realize. They were actually influenced by German conceptions of organic nationalism. Right, yeah. I mean, it, all that and, you're describing here is, uh, yeah, shouldn't sound very strange to ears who are more familiar with uh, various forms of European nationalisms, particularly Absolutely. more ethnic nationalism, the, the revival Absolutely. of some dormant nation, the invention of new traditions, Absolutely. and so on. Yeah. Yes, in fact, uh, Ben Anders put it very nicely when he said that there are two ways of looking at nationalism. Either you see it as an, inherit an inheritance from the past, in which case there will always be dispute about what is the proper inheritance and who are the proper inheritors. Mm -hmm. Or you see it for what it actually is. It belongs to the present and future. Nationalism is what we will make of it. And therefore, we, there are always competing nationalisms, and we must have to strive for, in fact, a much more humane, sensible, uh, uh, and, and, and democratic nationalism, but also recognizing that even the most democratic nationalism has its limitations. Mm. As, as one person has put it, but not this kind of inheritance, which of course inevitably leads to this, who are the proper inheritors, this, that. And this actually affects even those uh, democracies like France and nationalism, which are not religious, but which are supposedly civic. Because there they say, oh, the essence of France comes from this French Revolution. But these Muslims and others coming are really uh, uh, opposing this essential understanding that we have, which is the essence of our national. They're not prepared to recognize that even French nationalism has to be, is, all, is a constant ongoing project. And that, in mm -hmm. fact, democracy and all incorporation of various other groups and all is a central part of making your democracy or your nationalism much more humane, much more uh, generous, much more democratic mm -hmm. and so on. No, very good. So, I mean, I think, would you describe contemporary India? I mean, at least the, the, the tendency um, uh, which we see with the dominance of the BJP and perhaps the, even perhaps their hegemony. I mean, that's a, a question I guess I, I should put to you as well, whether you see that as uh, really uh, the, the gaining of the upper hand of an ethnic conception of nationalism over a civic one, one more concerned with who we are instead of where do we want to go, um, and whatever the limitations perhaps even of some certain civic nationalisms, that what you have today is uh, is in India perhaps entirely dominated by, by this more ethnic uh, and religiously based conception? One of course is the fact that even as earlier, as I said, because of the lack of sectorization of society and even the sort of prominence uh, or eminence given to Hinduism, even by the, uh, uh, by it, during the national movement, for example, this idea of collating this uh, and, and Gandhi's sort of approach of, of, of connecting religion uh, to national, nationalism through symbology and mythology and so on, uh, has been characterized, and I would say accurately, as a kind of major, majoritarian nationalism uh, in a liberal guise. Hmm? Mm. So now you have, if you like, a attempt to construct a much more aggressive Hindu nationalism, huh? which is obviously much, much less liberal and so on. It's not going to eliminate all characters of democracy, but I think we have to understand something very clearly and that the force that is in power does have a substantial uh, does have a, uh, a hegemony which is uh, it seeks to expand, and I can elaborate on that. But that it is in fact a far right force in power. The Congress Party is was a lot like, if you like, populist parties of Latin America after the Second World War. 
pursuing import substitution and so on, centrist in the sense, bourgeois centrism, if you like, in yeah. which they had a left wing and a right wing within it and so on, which then transmits because of the failure of developmentalism in two directions in Latin America. Hmm? One, these one-time populist centrist parties become right-wing smaller parties, or they disappear. Hmm? In India, the Congress disappearance may be something impossible, but it has long ago made the transition to becoming a much smaller right-wing parties. Mm -hmm. hmm? um, but the BJP RSS is a far-right party. And what has happened in India is that the center of gravity on questions of Hinduism and so on, etc., has also shifted to the right. So that you now have the Congress and so many other opposition parties accepting partially some of the claims and truths uh, of, uh, of Hindutva. And this is similar, if you like, to what's happened in Europe, uh, where you had, if you like, left-wing parties, social democratic type parties shifting to the right and accepting uh, uh, many of the uh, claims that were made by far-right parties, which mm -hmm. never came to power, but for example, their attitude towards racism and immigration and so on, have been accepted. So they've shifted in the fulcrum of politics in, uh, uh, in, in, in Europe has also shifted to the right. But they don't have, a f in most cases, uh, you do have in Hungary, perhaps, or Poland, you might say, a far-right force in power. But there's also a huge difference between this far-right force in India, then Bolsonaro in Brazil, then Duterte in, in the Philippines, then other Jobbik and others. Hello, listener. Alex here. Sorry to interrupt, but we've got some very exciting news to tell you. BungaCast is pregnant. The end of the end of history is soon here. The book, co-written by George, Phil, and myself, will be out on the 25th of June. The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, is our attempt to synthesize the discussions we've been having on this podcast over the past four years, and to advance an argument as to how and why the deadening end of history period had to end, as well as to look forward to what comes next. In the book, we describe what the end of history felt like, and why what we're now experiencing is such a huge rupture. The hysteria of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, the rise and fall of the left populism of Bernie or Corbyn, multiple varieties of angry anti-politics around the world, new fronts of the culture wars and mass protests. These are all facets of our new time. We also look at how new ideologies are emerging under the impact of the pandemic, which are set to rule the world for the next decade. And of course, our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi, makes a big appearance. It's available to pre-order now. Go to bungacast.com book for links and more info. Happy reading. We really do hope you enjoy it. I wanted to absolutely come to that and also come to something eventually about why you don't think uh, Hindu nationalism is should be called fascist. And I mean, on this podcast, regular listeners will know that we're very critical of the, the use and the overuse of the F word uh, to describe forces because it lacks, uh, you know, historical accuracy and uh, and it rather tends to confuse things. So I, I do want to come to that maybe just before that to kind of continue building this picture of what uh, of what Hindu nationalism is in India and specifically the BJP. Um, what is the BJP's social base? Because I, I know you I like that you referenced Turkey already, where there there was a, 
a, a very strong kind of militaristic secular elite, which tried to forcibly secularize the state. Um, and you end up with more plebeian elements uh, trying to, I guess, return to or defend uh, traditional religious uh, forms of belongings and so on. Uh, is, is that a similar thing in India or how, how would you characterize it? Would, would well, you... one important difference is that what happened is that the social base historically for decades in, uh, of, the, of this force, which we call the Sangh Parivar, really came from uh, urban and mofissal uh, uh, petty bourgeoisie, uh, lower sections of what was called the middle class, but mm -hmm. uh, in caste terms, upper Brahmin, below Brahmin, what are called forward caste, and the upper sections are what are called the middle caste, which the middle caste in India are called other backward castes. Uh, other backward classes, anyway. So that was the social base, caste-wise and class-wise. You've got some unsensing here. What they did from this, from 1925 on, was when it was founded, was that they built up a solid cadre base, which continued to work in the pores of Indian society during the national movement and even after the national movement, in spite of uh, all the tribulations, problems, the fact that Congress Party was there. The Congress Party had membership and struggle. During the uh, and cadres during the national movement period, after the uh, independence, when it becomes powerful and rules, it, its uh, ideology on which you base a cadre is a mishmash, and it's really holding people together and its cadres and activists together as a result of paternalism, clientelism, the uh, loaves of office at different levels, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So they have a strong cadre base, and what they've been able to do is that in the 80s, in particular they were able to generate through mass movements, particularly the movement around Ram Janmabhumi, they were able to dramatically expand their base. Today, their base, for example, huh? and as they became more powerful politically and became an alternative that the ruling classes and big capital could also see, they are able to, of course, have uh, get support from big capital. Today, they are by far the richest party uh, in India. They were able to expand their base into the professional sections, huh? uh, obvious professions. They were able to expand their base downwards into what we call the Dalits, used to be formerly called the untouchables, or there, and even among what are called the Adivasis or tribal, tribal sections. And they have done this through having the most powerful cater base of any force anywhere in the world, let alone in India. To give you some idea of what they've been able to build through their cadre formation, through their involvement in movements and troops relating to all kinds of struggles, is they have the largest private uh, network of private primary schools in the country. Mm. Mm? They have some 800 uh, uh, NGO type formations addressing various uh, issues. They have uh, uh, four pan Indian uh, structures. They have 36 uh, bodies of all kinds associated with them. They are implanted in Indian society, which is still very huge and which is a continent. So there's still a long way to go for them, but much more so than any other society. And that gives them a solidity. Think, if you like, of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and elsewhere, but magnified much, much more. Right. And... Uh, 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 in power uh, politically. Uh, again, I said I could tell you the difference here, but uh, this gives you some idea of their success in terms of uh, moving uh, their social base, expanding their social base, 
expanding their political uh, influence. And it has come through, uh, uh, if you look at, uh, it, it came all before they came to power electorally. You have the Congress party uh, dominating electorally until the uh, early 70s, mid 70s, declining. You have three non-BJP, non-Congress political formations coming to power uh, in uh, 1977, in 1989, and then in 1996. These three non-BJP, non-Congress bourgeois centrist formations don't last a term. It's after their failure that you have the BJP coming to power. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a whole period in which you have only coalition rule, but then you have in 2014, uh, single majority, barely, which is reinforced in the 2019 elections. You have a declining Congress. You have a force now which is the only truly national force, which once the Congress was, electorally speaking, but unlike the Congress, much more deeply implanted right uh, in society it's a much that, more successful think, organic party than than congress ever was uh, yes definitely at least after the uh, after the beginning of independence yeah so that's very interesting i think um before we talk about uh, some of the comparisons maybe and broaden out to some kind of global issues or some things that we can pull out from india which might have a more general application or or not uh i wanted to talk a little bit more about secularism um religion and modernity to dive into that question a little bit further because um one of the things that you describe is the way that secularism is attacked from various different sides not just by hindutva which we've been talking about but there's also a group, I guess, you or an intellectual tendency that you class as the anti-modernists, um, who are anti-Hindutva, but are at the same time sort of anti-secularists, and also maybe even post-modernists, and uh, how they also, in their own way, end up uh, standing against secularism. So, could you maybe, maybe this is a bit too big a question, but I mean, how, how would you classify these uh, these different forces uh, or these different intellectual trends which uh, attack secularism? Well, what happens is that um, uh, the um, anti-modernist current was one which had considerable influence among certain NGOs in the discourse, uh, in particular discourse. And their central argument, uh, I mean, some of the anti-modernists were more ambiguous modernists, but there was also a very strong, uh, at least one person who was the dominant figure who was very, very clearly an anti-modernist. Uh, he talked in terms of traditional, uh, critical traditionality. Uh, his discourse was... Right? was Ashish Nandi, yeah. who was a well, very well-known figure internationally, sir. And um, their argument was that, um, uh, in fact, this idea of secularism, which has been imposed from the top, uh, is unjust because really, uh, it's really this question of tolerance, which is inherent in Indian society, that is most important, right? And that modernity actually creates uh, the basis for all kinds of uh, tensions and conflicts and so on. Whereas earlier, we had a much more equable uh, society. And what we need to do is to learn from that from the past and to learn of how we are able to live together in various ways. And therefore, they, if you like, uh, are, are much more sympathetic to Gandhi and to his ideas of uh, respecting uh, mm. different uh, traditions. Um, they uh, So they feel that what the secular state has done huh, 
uh, is that uh, played a very negative role in terms of uh, refusing to recognize this. And what the Indian state should do is, of course, also move much more towards recognizing that there is a place uh, for religion uh, in politics. And actually, there is a, really, uh, a space for religion in politics, but it has to be a much more modest one in the past. So they are really preoccupied with that. They do not consider issues like capitalism seriously. Huh? Uh, they are focused precisely on the cultural dimension. Postmodernism, modernist not so much. Postcolonialists, more so. The difference between yeah. postmodernists and postcolonialists is that postmodernists and anti-modernists join together in saying that, look, we have to get out of our way of thinking. The real problem with colonization was not the physical aspect of colonization or the territorial aspect. It was the mental aspect. Mm. That you are using all kinds of concepts which emerge from the West, like secularism, like all that, etc., to try to make us think in that particular way. And by doing that, we are unable to understand our own resources that we have in our own society from the past in order to be able to uh, build a much more humane and, and better India. So if you like, uh, both is common to the post-colonialists, which are critical of that, uh, uh, of, 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 of modernists in that sense, as well as of post-modernists, um, um, and of the anti-modernists, is that they both rely on saying that we have to look towards what we have and our special resources. That's what the Chinese are doing when they talk about Tiangxi and harmony. It's what Africans are doing when they talk about Ubuntu. It's what we have to do when we look at our particular resources uh, here. And of course, there will be differences about somewhere these resources. There are some among the uh, ambiguous modernists and anti-modernists will say it's there primarily in Hinduism. Others will say, no, no, there are also currents in other religions because all religions have. And they make a distinction, the anti-modernists, uh, about good religion and bad religion. Uh, right. Uh, which is good religion is religion as faith. Bad religion is religion as ideology. Refusing to recognize <laughs> that you can't separate the two. Yeah, as if it were so simple. Yeah. It, yeah but... You can't uh, separate the two. But I'm saying that becomes there. And then they become critical of, uh, at the same time, they are pro-democracy. But a new current development there is, is that we have to find our own way um, towards our own kinds of democracy and our resources. You now have another current which you haven't mentioned, which is the mo multiple modernity school, which okay. is highly so. cultural. And the multiple modernity school is saying that there are multiple modernities. And how can you talk about there being multiple modernities when you have a dominant capitalism everywhere? Yeah. You can only do this if you underrate the importance of capitalism and you emphasize greatly the importance of cultural differences of various kinds. And then say we have to look to within our own culture to be able to develop the kind of society that we want. And that's the way to move towards. So you've got your post-colonialists, mm -hmm. multi -mod uh, multiple modernities, and you have the current of anti-modernity. And I guess altogether these uh, constitute, I guess in some ways, because you've just said the term, a, a sort of cultural turn, which is uh, an impediment, I suppose, to the development of materialist politics uh, and indeed even to, to class struggle, I suppose. Oh, yes. Uh, they're not very, of course, there is something to say. Of course, we do uh, believe in the necessary, necessity of cultural empowerment. We respect certain cultural rights and so on. But there are two ways in which you can look at modernity. You can have a basically cultural understanding of modernity or you can have an a cultural understanding of modernity. 
if you like, uh, even among those who have, uh, um, uh, look at Weber and, uh, and uh, Weberians and Marxists, if you like. Huh? Mm. Weberians will say uh, uh, a modernity that is also capitalist. Marxists will say a capitalist modernity. Now, Marxists are not saying that capitalism is the only thing about modernity. Yes, there's the Enlightenment, there's Protestant Reformation, so on. But they give much greater weight to the development of, uh, of, 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 of emergence of capitalism and establishing modernity and this whole tremendous dynamic of change as is distinct from Bavarians. And then within Bavarians, there'll be differences about uh, what are the forces and factors that actually lead towards the emergence of modernity uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and then, of course, you have all these other currents uh, that take place over here. But what is common to the Bavarians and to all the other points that I made is that they downgrade the significance of capitalism, which implies perhaps that they think that we can create a decent society within the framework of capitalism, which yeah. of course is another issue. So, I mean, all this is in a way an effacement of, of capitalism, even as a concept and maybe as something, uh, the object of political contestation in India. Would, is there a, a history that you can tell in terms of the way that that has uh, that that has happened? That the way that the um, waning contestation over capitalism, uh, or maybe waning class okay. struggle, has uh, has led to kind of these cultural features in which uh, you have the dominance of the anti-modernists, the post-colonialists, and so okay. on, who all move things over to the cultural plane. Okay, um, in the period between 1947 and the late 60s and 70s. The official ideology of the Congress Party was socialism, uh, non-alignment, uh, democracy, secularism. Uh, secularism, very weak, vague, they say here. Liberal democracy, okay. Non-alignment, I won't go into. Uh, socialism meant nothing more than uh, some notion of social justice and uh, capitalist social democracy. It wasn't really right. any kind of serious challenge to capitalism at any sort. Huh? Nehru himself was influenced by the Fabian tradition, for example, and so on. And you had in that period a lot of struggles about uh, uh, on material issues, prices, jobs, this, that, and so on. Huh? There's a shift later on. This mishmash of ideology gets less and less influential and becomes dismissed largely because there is the failure of developmentalism. You know, I gave you the example of Latin America, huh? the, uh, the developmentalist state of Latin, of, of centrist, bourgeois centrist parties. Uh, 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 sort of going in for import substitution and trying to make uh, there. And then, of course, that fails. And then, of course, you look to uh, other things. So that really paves the way for a different understanding of uh, they're not even successful in establishing some kind of social democratic uh, uh, capitalism. And then what do you have from the late 70s onwards? You have a kind of neoliberalism that emerges huh? in, and, and actually moves uh, worldwide. And the way to understand neoliberalism as a global phenomenon, is not to see it as a state of affairs, but a kind of direction in which the economy in particular is moving. And because it's a kind of direction, it means different countries and societies are at different starting points, and they are moving in that direction at different pace, at different speeds. So even Sweden uh, is also moving in that particular direction. Western mm -hmm. Europe, which is ahead of that, they're moving differently. Right? Now, in order to stabilize this, which of course is to the great advantage of the capitalist class and how it emerges, of course, we know here. Yeah, you have to have, uh, this is something that is moving globally, but we live in a world of multiple nation states. And how are you going to stabilize a right-wing shift 
which is what neoliberal uh, economic de uh, development is, unless you have a right-wing shift in politics and ideology. But that right-wing shift in politics and ideology will have to be nationally specific. It will have to be related to what is going on in different countries. Hmm? And therefore, it will take somewhat different forms in different countries, even though the pressure is there for nationalism and mm -hmm. you have that support and different degrees of success in establishing the right, far right uh, and whatever. In the Indian case, of course, you have this shift in the 70s. You have the attempts of other non-Congress bourgeois centrist parties to try and stabilize it in various ways. Because what happens to mean stabilizing is you have to control your population. You have to be able to unify it in some way, even uh, to mask the contradictions and so on. And the only force that was eventually able to successfully in India to do this hmm, was, in fact, the BJP, which has established a new hegemony. And what I mean by hegemony, if you like, is really three things. You have to become the most important force arbitrating between the different sections of capital. You have to get significant support from the middle classes, the petty bourgeoisie in the profession. You have to be able to deal through sticks and carrots all those below who are suffering from all kinds of problems. And you have to try to mask these conflicts, which are going to continue to take place between those below and above through some kind of unifying uh, uh, ideology. And that unifying ideology has, of course, the question, brings in the question of what Gramsci called the national popular will, and therefore the question of nationalism and the use of nationalism. And here, please notice that in Europe, in uh, elsewhere, in Southeast Asia, elsewhere, you've had the rise of authoritarian populisms and the, what's called uh, the politics of cultural exclusivism. Mm -hmm. The politics of cultural exclusivism really emerges from the... Uh, uh, early 80s, late 70s onwards. Bob someone talked about it in terms of having three uh, expressions, if you like, four expressions, race, ethnicity, religion, nation, so separately or in some combination. And they take place everywhere. Hmm? And for, for example, you have in from the uh, 80s in the advanced country, uh, anti racist and anti-immigrant xenophobia growing. You have uh, in uh, Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia and Soviet Union, irredentist nationalism. You have the rise of religious extremisms everywhere. And in almost all of these cases, for them to be powerful, they combine and co-opt or connect with the question of nationalism. Yeah. So you have all of these developments. They're there in the process of neoliberalism. They get reinforced after the turn of the millennium, especially after the Great Recession. And you now have, of course, this uh, whole situation. In the Indian case, this was the particular force that could most effectively mobilize the masses in various ways. It was base that was implanted. It was the base which could actually address. And therefore, this Hindu nationalism, which earlier, as part of its Hindu nationalism, talked about an economic nationalism, has completely abandoned the idea of economic nationalism, has a much more explicit and specific understanding of capitalism, which it promotes and supports and wants the support of the capitalist class and is now seen by them as a vehicle that could best in, uh, enhance mm -hmm. their particular interests. Hmm? It's not that the other opposition parties have that much difference on foreign policy or, or economic policy, but what they cannot do is they cannot provide the kind of stabilization uh, domestically yeah. uh, that this particular force can. Uh, besides which, of course, they have advanced in terms of their uh, acceptance of their particular ideology and what has been called uh, syndicalizing or singularizing the understanding of Hinduism. 
So I, there were so many important points there. I, I wish I could kind of recap all of them. But um, one thing in particular, I think, which is very important is the way that this uh, shift to the cultural plane um, and even, you know, a move to cultural essentialism of which uh, these various nationalisms that you mentioned are part of, they go along with neoliberalism. And so rather than neoliberalism being understood as something cold, purely rational, purely quantitative, not really interested in uh, supposed kind of ethnic passions or anything like that, uh, actually ends up reinforcing this uh, turn towards culture. Um, and one thing that strikes me is that I think this is this can obviously be seen uh, in what you've just described about the BJP in India, and you can think about other cases, uh, Orban in Hungary, Kaczynski's in Poland, and so on. Um, but maybe even in a different way, in a different guise, in the sort of identity politics, often liberal identity politics, as well as right-wing identity politics in the West, where neoliberalism there has also furthered um, a turn towards cultural essentialism and, and various forms of identity politics. Um, maybe you could re reflect on that or, or you know, tell me what you think about that. But also, because um, hmm. I also wanted to put this in relation to India specifically, because um, one thing that I think that, that is quite important to understand is the way that uh, caste it, in India has also become a form of identity politics, whereby uh, in its relationship to the state, uh, caste um, it guarantees certain certain quotas, right? Or affirmative action, uh, you know, for, for American listeners, I guess the term that the, they would understand. Um, so before we guess, maybe we can reflect on this on this question about uh, identity politics and neoliberalism in the West. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how uh, caste is a, you know, is a form of identity politics, I guess, in India today. Well, let me put it this way. Um, um, uh, one hoped uh, there has always been, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that, if you like, batters the idea of existing Hinduism uh, or uh, as a kind of highly tolerant religion, because how can you talk about tolerance of ancient India when you have the caste system there, which is the, uh, the strongest example of uh, profound intolerance, so social intolerance here. Now, what you've had in India is a caste system, and you've had, historically speaking, People trying at the bottom, and people trying to fight against this caste system in uh, uh, two ways. Hmm? One was to try to move out of the caste system huh? through religious conversion, Islam, mm. Christianity, huh? Buddhism, huh? Uh, with only limited success because even within Islam and Christianity, you still find the caste system, uh, <laughs> but not in the same strong uh, expression and format as you would have in Hinduism. That's one. The second has been to try to move upwards. Caste in India is not something that's the same everywhere. It's regionally dispersed, and there are differences and variations in where you are in the hierarchy of caste. Huh? And you also try to move upwards through adopting the, uh, the symbols and the expressions and the rituals and the ways of life. But they are very limited. Hmm? And you had two kinds of struggle uh, in caste. In South India, you had a struggle against the Brahmins who were the, at the very top. And this struggle against Brahmins was quite successful because it could unite all the castes below the Brahmins towards that. The bottommost section of the caste system, the, the, uh, the Dalits, Ambedkar and others, uh, this is the force that could fight against the caste system completely to eradicate it. But what has happened over a period of time is that even Ambedkar's effort 
didn't really uh, result uh, in a direction of actually fighting to destroy the caste system. He talked about it. Liberals and progressives all talk about the caste, uh, getting rid of the caste system. But ultimately, what Ambedkar did was try to escape the caste system mm. by talking about converting to Buddhism. Hmm? And in order for you to successfully defeat the caste system, you have to connect the question of caste and class because those at the bottom of the caste are also those who are very much uh, 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 the most oppressed sections of the working class here. Huh? And in an agricultural society like India, you will find a very considerable overlap between those who are landless laborers or have only a small proportion mm -hmm. of land, uh, the lower uh, car class and the lower and the caste. And therefore, if you like, you could have had a solidarity between uh, lower caste and lower class and, and combine the two and fight in that particular direction here. That hasn't happened. What has happened, of course, is something like what's happened in the United States. You have affirmative action in the United States. You've had quotas over a period of time. In both countries, this has helped to develop a certain middle class within the uh, blacks and within the uh, lower castes. Hmm? Yeah. Right. So this has become quite substantial. Right. But the bulk of them remain at the bottom. They are incorporated within the existing class structure, uh, structures of power. Hmm? So you have in the United States, if you like, a black middle class that as compared to, say, the 60s, must be five times greater than ever it was before. But it is now connected, particularly to the Democratic Party. And incidentally, yeah. in the Democratic Party, it's part of the Clinton machine, which actually wasn't supportive of uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And it's something that they can play around with, right? In the case of India, what has happened is that you've also had lower sections of the Dalits who have uh, responded to the Sangh, uh, BJP, Sangh Parivar, RSS message that, look, you are Hindus like us. So that appeal that we are now part of a larger, wider community huh? and we're not looked down upon, if you like, in the same way. Huh? And yes, we will even give you positions in our party and you can also be part of our programs attacking Muslims and all, which is a, its own peculiar form of like empowerment and all. What this has meant in the absence of alternatives to fight to destroy the caste system, what you've had is a preoccupation among lower castes and all to move upwards. If you like, when you focus on discrimination, hmm, the logic of fighting against discrimination is upward mobility. Yeah. If you, if you uh, want to get rid of the caste system, and if you want to have maximum racial equality, then that's a kind of struggle that is not simply a struggle for upward mobility. It is much more than that. And that, of course, means a transformation of all societies. And you are not seeing that in the, uh, in, in the, in the uh, United States. And you're not uh, seeing that in, the, uh, uh, in India. I was part of the anti-racist movement in England. And I was very much part of the Black Power movement. In those days, of course, whether you were a progressive Chinese or a progressive Asian, uh, 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 black was a political color. We are black. It's yeah. not like today hmm, that we're there. But I also saw the limitations of a black nationalism. Hmm? That you have to go beyond simply the question of black nationalism. You, know? you have to be able to also collectively fight in order against the whole system that uh, oppresses in so many ways. I mean, one can talk about so many things, international sectionality and all the rest of it. Yeah. But I think that uh, this is something that's... Um, uh, 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 very, very important. So the result is that the political force which is making considerable grounds among the Dalits is not the left, is not your liberals, 
It's in fact this particular force, which of course is quite worrying. At the same time, it's only limits. Because of the very nature of Hinduism, if the BJP Sangh wants to, uh, has to pursue India making strong through uniting Hindus, it can only do this in one of two ways, not three or four ways. One, it tries to find some principle of unification within Hinduism. And the only candidate it has for this is a kind of loose and accommodating Brahmanism. And it can only go so far. The second principle is that you find a principle of unification outside Hinduism to which you can say Hindus must be against. And that is more effective because it can invite all sorts of currents. If you like, in the, uh, and that of course becomes Muslim than Islam. If you like, what is authoritarian populism or what is happening in Europe and elsewhere? It is much easier to unite the French and the Germans or the whatever against the other, which today are the Muslim migrants, if you mm -hmm. like. Uh, listen, then, and this helps to mask and cover up. So, of course, all these authoritarian populism needs a scapegoat, which is either internal or external or both. The difference between Europe and the United, uh, India is that for Europe, do you know that the only that, that uh, it's much more flexible and variable? Muslims are not the hated other. You know when it started to become the more hated other? After the 1973 oil crisis. And what yeah. are the Islamic yeah. states doing? And then later on. The racism in Europe uh, uh, was more related to biological skin color, but now is much more cultural in character. Mm -hmm. In the case of Hindutva, it has been foundational from its very inception, which I think is an important difference between uh, uh, that uh, uh, Hindutva here. Uh, I've often said, for example, that if you look at three countries that were partitioned, Ireland, uh, uh, Palestine, and, uh, uh, and India, huh? the partition in Ireland, uh, you, a small rump uh, gets, uh, gets stuck to a UK in which the majority are the Protestants, and you have a significant Catholic minority. In the case of uh, Israel, Zionism is a culturally exclusive racist ideology, just like Hindutva is. Huh? But that racism is directed, it's not anti-Muslim, it's anti-Palestinian. But today, happy to piggyback on current Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. In the case of the uh, culturally exclusive uh, ideology of Hindutva, it's anti-Muslim, anti-Christian, anti-communist. But uh, Christians are too small a uh, proportion, and you have to be careful about how you handle Christians because the West will get upset. And uh, <laughs> communists, of course, terrible here. But... Muslims is the focus, because after all, and then, of course, the construction of anger and hatred in various ways. Uh, that's the caste system. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I've talked about your other question was about the question of multi uh, identity politics and multiculturalism. Yes. And whether you think that's a, a, a sort of necessary accompaniment to neoliberalism, um, both maybe well, in relation to the Indian context, but also especially, I guess, in the West. Yes. Well, it certainly serves a, a question of dividing and, and diverting. And um, it's also the question that it's much more difficult to, um, uh, to tackle um, capitalism. Hmm? And um, I, as I pointed out that you had this politics emerging as you have an erosion of, uh, of, uh, of, of development everywhere, with the partial exception of East Asia. In the advanced yeah. countries onwards, you have the erosion of development. You have in India and Latin America the failure of the attempted developmentalist state. You also have, as a result of increasing inequalities attendant upon uh, neoliberalism of income, wealth, and therefore a power, the erosion of democracy, as uh, has been put. Uh, 
uh, after the end of the Cold War, you had a certain spread of procedural democracy in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. But but elsewhere, where you had democracy, so you have an erosion of the content of democracy. Everywhere, there's much greater erosion of content of democracy. So you have the erosion of content of democracy. You have that. You have a greater psychic destabilization, if you like, of peoples, because globalization, as I think Jameson pointed out, does something which becomes very uh, difficult for ordinary people, uh, most people, to understand, and that is that the time-space coordinates of your lived experience are no longer able to, are no longer going to be able to help you to even understand the time-space coordinates of all the kinds of forces that are operating transnationally that actually shape your life. So there's also a kind of psychic destabilization that pushes people, if you like, to try to cling on to something that they are more confirmed yeah. about, if you like, their, their identities of ascription by birth. Because, so, yeah. I th- so that's a great point. And maybe just to finish up, uh, a last question, uh, which relates very specifically <clears throat> to this, which I had noted down. Uh, which is about the future, I guess, of secularism uh, globally, because in a situation in which alienation is increasing, people feel less control over their lives. Wh- where do you where do you see the future of, of secularism going? And is there, you know, because I think what we can see is even where there isn't a sort of uh, form of religious nationalism as there is in India, certain most European countries don't really have too strong a, a sort, of, sort of religious nationalism. But you have other forms which emerge in its stead, uh, which is to say maybe identity politics or forms of maybe conspiracy theory even, which seek to explain the world uh, or a turn to spiritualism in a very uh, individualistic sort of way. Uh, do you are, are these all, do you think, turns away from from secularism and a, and a response or provoked by, by growing alienation? Yes, of course, that's uh, substantial too. But to answer a larger question, what do we do about this question of secularism? Yeah. Let's understand the relationship between sec- secularism and uh, uh, and democracy. A secular state and a substantially secularized society is the necessary but not sufficient condition for having a strong democracy. So you can have a secular state and a substantially secular society, huh? like the old Soviet Union, which is not democratic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's not what. But it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. Democracy is being attacked from various directions. Insofar as secularism has a connection to the question of religion and therefore to religious communities, right? You have to address the question of how do will how can religious communities live together well? And how can they live together? We're not talking about the elimination of religion. When we talk about the question of secularism and secularization in relation to modern societies, we're talking about negotiating and establishing the terms of coexistence between religion and uh, uh, secular modernity, if you like. And there will be a place for religion, but it has to be more, more modest than in the past. And there has to be evolution within religious traditions and communities and beliefs in different directions, which is happening to some extent, but limited and goes up and down. Hmm? The Vatican now accepting the question of homosexuality, the question of liberation theology in Christianity, all of these things here. There are also uh, indications, uh, sexism, all that are indications of a constant struggle that is going on over here. You have to talk about strengthening and deepening democracy. You can't talk about deepening democracy unless you also address the question of capitalism, 
leave aside the importance of the ecological dimension here, we will have to move towards a kind of society in which is very different from the kind of society today. I happen to believe, rightly or wrongly, that neoliberalism is a new style of accumulation of capital. And you're not going to be able to go back to some kind of social democratic capitalism. Doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for the reforms and all. Uh, but for the ecological, they say, you have to transcend that to a different way of living, if you like, because what multiculturalism does and the preoccupation multiculturalism does is that diverts attention from questions of hierarchy and hierarchies yeah. of power. Huh? And unless you move in the direction of greater egalitarianism with regard to hierarchy of uh, powers and all, how are you going to move towards a greater egalitarianism with regard to the question of the relationship between different religions? And that greater egalitarianism with regard to religions also means moving towards a society in which you are free to be an atheist, you're free to move from this religion to that religion or not that religion. But you tell me how many religious communities are prepared to accept this kind of ecumenism in a certain sense, in which you have a much greater degree of individual flourishing, a much greater degree of freedom of choice, a much greater degree of equality and all. In other words, we cannot separate the question of secularism from the question of democracy. We cannot separate the question of democracy from the question of capitalism. And we have to think about ways to actually make democracy much, much more deeper than it ever was, because even at its best, liberal democracy had its huge failings and problems. Uh, Raymond Williams once said that there are two ways of understanding what we are uh, a common culture. One understanding of culture is that which is commonly shared. The other understanding is culture that is commonly fashioned. We also have to understand that culture, if you like, and this is a problem with multiculturalism and identity politics, is that culture is a process. It's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to be able to actually intervene to make that. Cultural empowerment means having much greater capacity uh, for greater education and understanding and greater power for people to actually construct propositions, life, all the kind of things that we can do. And we are living in a world in which culture is constantly changing because it's a process. I have just one final question about whether you would use the term fascism to describe Hindu nationalism. Obviously, this uh, uh, force has fascist characteristics, but uh, let's. Uh, but one thing, and this is one thing in which you have something we can hold on to, and that is that uh, you are not having any kind of fascist dictatorship. And the fascist dictatorship was the strongest form of dictatorship, much more than a military dictatorship, because it had popular power and appeal over here. But one of the legacies of the struggle against fascism and historically is that everywhere you have among ordinary people a serious commitment to democracy, to some kind of democracy, mm -hmm. to some kind of rights. You can't have the old fascist appeal that the fascist state and the fascist uh, personality is the best expression of democracy. That won't work yes. anymore. And Absolutely. that's something that, is, uh, something that is very, very important for us to understand. So fascist potential, fascist dangers, Huh? Fascist characteristics? Yes, indeed. But let's uh, recognize over here, and you can't separate the question. I mean, I've gone on, maybe I should stop there. One problem with Indians, as perhaps you've known, is that Indians love to talk. Uh, <laughs> very good. Well, in Brazil, we do too. Um, but let, let's just, let's leave it there. Uh, Achen Van Eyck, thank you very much. That's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I'd like to carry this on for another hour if we could. Uh, I would also encourage listeners to absolutely check out uh, Achen's book if they, they're interested 
in India, but also especially in these wider themes. Um, I don't know if there's something that you would like to recommend of your writing in particular. Uh, I really enjoyed The Rise of uh, Hindu Authoritarianism, which came out in 2017. Yes, I did write a book in 2020, which dealt with, um, uh, it's called Nationalist Dangers and uh, Secular Feelings, a compass for an Indian left. But although um, um, a large part of it, or the bulk of it deals with India, for example, the two hegemonies that I talked about over here, a criticism of the Indian constitution. There's a big 40-50 uh, 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 page uh, uh, chapter, which is about the question of Marxism and nationalism. Excellent. Uh, which has um, uh, um, um, a theoretical perspective here. And there's another chapter, which is also of more general interest beyond India, which is the question of organization, in which I talk about uh, the uh, defense in many ways of um, uh, the uh, vanguardist position against its criticisms here about how you have to move towards a, 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 a transcending beyond capitalism. So although there are chapters which are very India-focused, these are two chapters which are there. It's brought out by Akar Books, came out in March 2020. And of course, we'll always uh, put links to uh, our, our guest work uh, in, in the show notes so you can access those listener uh, just by clicking down below. All right, thank you so much for joining us, Ajahn, and thank you, listener. If you enjoyed this, consider subscribing at patreon.com slash bungacast. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. That's good, but please do not insult Indians by saying Brazilians talk as much as Indians. Nobody <laughs> talks as much as Indians.